Chief Yuya here, and you are listening to the Chief Yuya podcast. Greetings and welcome, everyone. We are, of course, dealing with Conan the Barbarian. In this particular segment, we'll be doing a little bit of a breakdown. Not too much, because we want to really focus on the concept of, of really uh, children in Conan the Barbarian, and more specifically, child soldiers. All right. So uh, as many of you may hopefully know, because you listened to the last segment, we're doing a three part segment and uh, well, three to four. Maybe we might add a, another piece in. But for now, a uh, three part segment uh, utilizing 1984 Conan the Barbarian and, and the never ending story. And of course, we already covered 1984 and now we're looking at uh, Conan the Barbarian. So I urge you, if you did not check the last one, go check the last one. So let's get right into it, right? Conan the Barbarian came out in, in uh, at least the film itself, came out in 1982. Uh, the story is, is actually a very old one, uh, not just in, in terms of the, of the archetype it represents, but it, was, it actually started off as a, as a literary text, you know, as, as do so many stories, right? So, um, you know, when we're looking at Conan, we're looking at um, a fictional time that was created by uh, Robert Robert Howard. And uh, Robert Howard was an author, and uh, he actually died in 1936. He committed suicide. So he had a really short run. He was only 30 years old uh, when he transitioned. And he had a really short run of, um, you know, his actual work, his actual literary work and his and his writing. But uh, he had written a novel, Conan, uh, it was around 1934, and he had written a series of short stories on Kul, or Kull, K-U-L-L, which they also did a movie on Call as well. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was okay, you know, but considering how important it should have been, uh, you know, it didn't really do justice. But you had Call, who was, and then you had uh, Conan as well, right? So... The idea there again with, with Conan was that, uh, you know, he, he's a barbarian, as many of you may be aware of, but you may not have known that he actually came out of a out of an earlier work dating back to around like 1932. And uh, he was someone who came from a land of uh, Samaria. So Conan was a Sumerian. All right. And of course, uh, it's very important. You look at some of these words and. You can almost match them up. You know, it gets really interesting. You, you get a sense of of who's being referenced. But like I said, Conan started off uh, as a series of short stories, and they're they're pretty good. Like if you read them, I've I've read uh, probably all of them at this point. I think there might be some I'm missing. I don't know, but I think I've pretty much read all of them. And there's short stories, and then there's longer novels. Like I said, he he had a short run because of the the alleged suicide, you know, in 1936. But, um, you know, you get a real understanding through Conan of what the spirit or the energy of stoicism really represented. You know, and if you watch the movie, which I hope you do, I also hope that you checked out or have read the book 1984 since our, our last segment, or at least watched the movie. Uh, and then the same thing I would urge you for Conan uh, you can watch the movie. You know, I'm primarily going to deal with the movie. And one of the reasons is because I'm focusing on a time period as well, uh, which, like I said, was around 1982 
to uh, 1985, 82 to 85, right? And there were some very interesting films that came out around that time that were clearly about a particular agenda. And a lot of it was centered around children. Of course, when we hit the 90s, uh, when we started hearing uh, terms like Generation X, you know, and there were so many experiences and so many cartoons and movies and things like that that were centered primarily around the experience of children. Even songs like Parents Just Don't Understand by Will Smith and Jazzy Jazzy Jeff, you know, things like that. So you start to see that there was really a Pied Piper type of spirit that was being generated around that time. Maybe at some point I'll do a breakdown on the Pied Piper. Another very um, interesting and interestingly insidious uh, story to learn. But again, like I said, when we did 1984 in our last session, these things that I'm showing you, it's not just for the for the enjoyment of a movie breakdown. Oh, I you know, I like movies about barbarians. You know, it's not that. It's to give you some clarity on what's happening around you right now. And sometimes art is a good way to express that. You know, it's a good way for people to to kind of understand what's actually going on. You know, maybe some you know, some people can can um you know, they they can relate to it you know, a bit more than when you're just giving them theory, right? So we're going to use some of this art, but you should understand also that the art itself is purposeful, you know, or the release of certain things, you know, again, uh, similar to H.P. Lovecraft. And just so you know, um, Robert Howard and H.P. Lovecraft were, were comrades and they used to share ideas back and forth. If you read some of H.P. Lovecraft's work, even in the Necronomicon, you see certain shout outs almost to this to Robert Howard's work and so forth. So they would actually put each other's concepts into each other's work, you know, um, basically dealing with a similar level of occultism. Right. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of uh, background on who the actual author is. And you can, of course, go and you could probably get copies, I'm assuming, of all of all those works now online. Um and you can read the other, you know, Conan works. And there were other ones that were call works as well. But again, a lot of his works dealt with stoicism and chivalry, right? And when you, and some of that you don't really necessarily get from the movie. You don't really get Conan's story or even Thalsa Doom, who was the antagonist in the movie played by James L. Jones, uh, which was very purposeful, which we'll get into in a second. Um, but on some levels, you don't really get you know, maybe some of the behavior or, or when you study about the the um, the age that he's created, that that um, Hyperion age um, or Hyborian, excuse me, the Hyborian age that he created, which is basically it was like a fictional age. But if you understand it, 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 it comes from somewhere. So he didn't just pull it out of out of nowhere. But it was a time where there were there were monsters and there were magic and. You know, there was it was it was a very violent time. And at the same time, it was a very ignorant time and and things like that. So that kind of set the stage, uh, you know, for everything that was happening. And he actually had a work that you could read just about the the Hyborian age um, or but, but that actually came from a Nordic 
uh, mythology, the, the Hyperborean or the Hyperperian age. Right. So he pulled that. And just like when you when you watch the movie or you, or you read the books, you'll you'll see like references to Valhalla, you know, um, or even Krom. And Krom is 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 um, Conan's God. Right. But there was a there was a, a deity known as Krom as well. You know, so you you start to get a um, or there's there's a reference to Akkadians, you know, this. So you get a, a sense that there's there's somewhat of an interweaving between what's real and, and what's been, you know, made mythical. But ultimately, it's done to tell a story. Right. So I just wanted to give that that little eight, nine minute intro or whatever, uh, just on Ron Howard, Ron Howard, excuse me. Um <laughs> Not not Ron Howard. I'm sorry. Just on Robert Howard uh, himself, just so you can kind of get a sense of some of what came behind it and why even maybe some of the imagery or the ideas of, you know, Robert Howard himself was a bodybuilder and a boxer, you know, so you, you kind of get a sense of why Conan looks the way he does. And, you know, um, you know, just just the idea of of some of the work and. You know, the fact and you can look up some of his other writings, you know, if that's what you're into, you know, but why there's all this movement towards like sword play and sorcery and, and warriorhood and things like that. Um, and then you can learn about, you know, the the intertwining that he had with H.P. Lovecraft and, you know, that whole Cthulhu, you know, uh, experience that H.P. Lovecraft brought forth, which. I think I've done some I think I've done some breaking down a little bit on the Necronomicon in many years past. I don't know if those segments are still available. Uh Blog Talk Radio did something recently where they removed uh all of the old shows for those of us who had these really old shows they they took out like all I don't know from what year they started but like all the old Arisha shows all that stuff is gone. So the links are there but when you hit play there's nothing there. So some of them are on YouTube, but uh, I actually have copies of all of them, you know, so, you know, I don't <laughs> I don't trust any of these platforms. So I keep copies of everything and I and I just I pay for cloud storage in order to keep all the old videos, all the, the podcasts, even the social media posts, texts and all. I keep everything because, hey, you, you never know, you know, but um, and in any event. Let's get into Conan and and what we're talking about here in terms of Conan and and you know uh, the Sumerian the Sumerian excuse me um, and what he really represents in terms of what I'm saying about children and and child soldiers you know Conan is and I feel for me has always been one of the greatest representations of what happens in North America in terms of um, how you create a soldier. You know, if you watch the Conan story, you get all of it. Now, of course, I, I've, I've referenced Conan before, and I said, yeah, it's the same pretty much Osirian myth, which it is. It's pretty much the same Osirian mythos. You know, someone is living a peaceful life. Everything is cool. Then someone comes and disrupts that peaceful life. And forces that individual to now go on a journey of redemption, usually to redeem uh, the death of their father or the death of their parents. 
And then when they do that, they travel back up, you know, and usually get the person who caused the problem or or whatever. But they travel back back to their original throne. But now they're all the wiser and all the stronger and all the more knowledgeable as a result of their journey. Right. So that that Haru myth or that Osirian myth mythos is, you know, it's it's uh, it's really common. Right. So. It's one of the reasons why I said I, I don't really do the movie breakdowns as much because honestly, <laughs> it's almost like you've seen one, you've seen them all, you know, but there are different variations that you can pull from uh, and learn different things in terms of in terms of the films, especially when you tie them together like we're doing in this series. Right. So, again, Conan the Barbarian, the film itself came out uh, around 1982 and um you know, they had kind of conceptualized it before then, but uh, it was able to get done with, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, in 1982. And I'm not going to do a full, just like I did with 1984, I didn't do a full breakdown of everything. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that with this as well. So I'm, I really just want to kind of pivot on the points I want to bring out because, again, there's a lot. I think Conan the Bar- No, I know Conan the Barbarian is a movie that every man should study. And in fact, I, I advise you men to read the Conan books. You know, even just one or two of them. You don't have to, like, get into the whole long series. But um, what's represented in the film, they give you little sprinkles of things. But there's a lot there. Like I said, Conan the Barbarian was shivers. Now, you wouldn't really get that from the movie. You wouldn't understand that, like, yeah, he was a deadly warrior. I mean, it was kind of noted that there was no one on the planet stronger than him. He didn't have, like, supernatural powers or anything like that. He was hardened through a tough life. But, um, you know, he would do he would go above and beyond to save women at certain times or or to help a child. You know, so there was a tenderness about him at the same time. You know, so he wasn't just this brutish savage who was going around you know snapping people's necks even though he may have been freakishly strong and 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 large but you know um again there was there were other sides to that you know but um let's go to let's just go to the beginning so in the beginning you're watching the the film and you see that there's a sword being made right So that already gives you the idea that there's going to be some kind of vengeance that's going to be enacted. Because why are you making a sword? And of course, if you understand Nordic uh, tradition or or Nordic culture, you'll understand when that sword is being made, what's really being said there. You know, there's a there's a whole um, there's a whole uh, mythos around even that, you know. But anyway, so what we're going to what I want to start with, which I feel is one of the, the more important things we'll we'll get to the sword um you know kind of started with the sword and you see the runes being put in the sword that was an important piece too by the way when you see the runes being put into the sword it's really a reference to that mythos of grammar or gram in in a nordic tradition similar to the word grammar but gram means wrath you know and um it was sigurd who used gram to kill the dragon fafnir so that's a foreshadowing of Conan's experience in the pit when he kills a snake. But let's, you know, snake is like the dragon, but let's, let's just go to, you know, like the beginning. So it, 
the first dialogue you're hearing is the dialogue between Conan's father. Well, Conan doesn't really see he's a little boy. He doesn't really say anything, but his father's talking to him and he's speaking to him about his own mythos, you know, and he's telling him, your God is Krom. So he's starting him off as a young boy, giving him that sense of spiritual identity, you know, and his father says, you know, fire and wind, they came from the sky, uh, you know, or, or the fire and wind that they're gods of the sky, they come from the sky, but your God is Krom and Krom lives inside of the earth. And then he says, you know, at one point there were giants who lived in the earth along with Krom and, um, and in the darkness of chaos, they fooled Krom and they took from him the enigma of steel, right? So Krom got angered and the earth shook and fire and wind struck down the giants and then they threw their bodies into the waters right so you're getting you're getting all these these lemuria atlantis references you know um and you get that narration in the beginning you know where it talks about at the time when when you know atlantis sunk into this it was swallowed by the sea so you're getting a sense of the time period you know and even the, the, the people who we're talking about here but you know it says fire and wind struck the giant giants down and threw them into the water, but in their rage, they, they, the gods had forgot the secret of still and left it on the battlefield. So they say, so his father tells them, we who found it, we, we were just men, not gods, not giants, but just men. So the secret of still has always carried with it a mystery. Then he, this is the important piece, the whole important piece in all of this. He tells Conan, you must learn its riddle, Conan. You must learn the discipline. For no one in the world can you trust, not men, not women, not beast. And then he, he looks at the sword. He like points over to it. And he says, this you can trust. All right. Now, his father was a blacksmith. He was the he was their clan's uh, blacksmith. But that whole. That whole riddle. Or that whole story sets the entire tone. Right. And. For so many of you who have gone through pain and struggle, that story right there is everything for you. I'll explain some more libations here. All right, so. And if anybody's noticing that the sound of this bottle <laughs> sounds like the same sound from that 1984 story because it's the same gallon of water that I'm drinking on. That's that's bad, though. So I'm going to urge you, boys and girls, drink your water. I've been drinking the same gallon of water for, for seven days now. You know, I don't really I don't drink much water. I'm I'm forever dehydrated but whenever i check my my, my bio impetus and my water my water levels are always fine i guess because i don't really eat things that are dehydrating so i really don't need to drink water really but anyway so um we have this experience right so again like i said that sets the tone for everything that's coming next you know that sets the tone for everything that's coming next um so now after we we get this beautiful story that is father shares and kind of gives us some background on who they are as a people 
uh, Conan is out doing some ice fishing as a, you know, as a little boy and, um, the village is raided, right? So I don't want to go step by step by step by step by step because we'll, we'll, we'll be here kind of like all day. But, um, his village gets raided and essentially it's the forces of Thalsa Doom, who's the antagonist again, played by James L. Jones. Very critical that it was James Errol Jones who played Thalsa Doom. Very critical, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, there's a couple of points I'll hit, but my ultimate points, I want to speak about the children <laughs> in this particular segment. But, you know, there's a lot of gems here that I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple more, you know, a couple of gems along the way to what we're talking about. But again, not everything. So, again, Thulsa Doom and his forces come out of the forest. Now, why is this so significant? Because the forest represents the subconscious mind. It represents heaven or it represents the underworld, right? That place of darkness. So when you see Thulsa Doom coming out of the forest, it represents, it's just like the Necronomicon. It's that H.P. Lovecraft kind of reality where something is coming out of the dark into the light. Or something is coming out of your subconscious mind into your conscious mind, right? So, um, so you know, Dulce Doom and, and his people, his raiders, they come through. Uh, they attack the village that uh, Conan lives in. And um, essentially, you know, they, they kill everybody, you know, uh, except for the children. They kill everyone except for the, for the children. And they actually behead Conan's mother, which is, was also, I mean, I remember when the, when the movie came out and seeing that part and that was like, whoa, you know, that was like so deep because Thulsa Doom, ah, oh man, I don't want to, it's so much. Thulsa Doom basically hypnotizes her. He looks at her in the eyes, James L. Jones, which was a, yeah, matter of fact, I should bring that point up. Very significant point. You know, they, they were all dramatic about it. You know, the fact that he killed her, but, um, you know, she's fighting off the raider. She's got a sword and she's, she's holding her own. And then they surround her with young Conan and she's got her sword out. Like, you know, let's obviously she's scared, but she's like, let's do it. And he jumps off down off his horse. Thulsa Doom takes off his helmet. Right. And oh, there's so much here. <laughs> and then he looks at her in the eyes and she kind of becomes mesmerized, drops her sword and then he turns his back on her and then he 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 does like a reverse backward spin with his hand and he chops her head off with it with his sword while Conan was holding her hand. Right. Very significant, very significant, because it showed that, of course, he had like, you know, a lack of respect. But um, the other aspect is that after he cuts off her head, like Conan never even looks up. He never like you see her hand drop behind him, but he never looks up. He only looks at his hand. So it's it's a foreshadowing at that point that he will have to live by his own hand. He will have to live by his own way. There's no there's no there's no covering. Right. The, the, the covering is gone at this point. So uh, essentially, um, you know, they take the children, they, they, they pretty much kill all the men. They have wild dogs there and dogs devour Conan's father and Conan's father is holding him off. He's, he's, you know, he's chopping at him. He's doing his thing. And then what happens is that he, you know, he gets overwhelmed 
And uh, then they sick the dogs on him and the dogs, you know, finish him off. Right. So, you know, like I said, you have the whole scene. Now, let me let me also give you this bit. Thulsa Doom. And this is where we get into the making of the soldier where it gets so deep. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit because, like I said, I'm not doing a full movie breakdown. So you'll have to watch it to get some of the chronology. Uh, but if I did it step by step, it would, I'd have to, it'd take too long. I don't, I don't want to do all that. So, um, Dulce Doom symbol are snakes, right? And if you look at the snakes, yeah, it looks like the Kundalini snakes. It's two snakes facing each other in the background of a black moon or a black sun. That is extremely significant. Extremely. So even at one point, which we'll get into um, with Conan, well, we'll get into that. I I won't be so out of order with it. But I want you to remember that that's the symbology, that black snake, right? Or those two snakes facing one another, you know, with the backdrop of the black sun, you know, or the black moon. We're told that it's pretty much both. It's the sun and the moon, and they're both black. Okay? So... What happens is, like I said, the children are taken, you know, and they're essentially taken into slavery and they're, they're forced to work. Right. And uh, but their, their work is very interesting because it it almost seems like that their toil is meaningless. They're put on this wheel. And it's, and it's a gigantic wheel and it's the wheel is set horizontally. Right. And they basically just have to push the wheel. And it looks like it's a mill, a mill of sorts, like maybe it's grinding grain or something or grinding nothing because it's kind of like in the middle of nowhere. Right. And that's an important, a really important part of this whole story and this whole experience is the fact that they're pushing this this wheel night and day. Conan is along with them, but all of these children are just pushing this this heavy will night and day together and they're chained to it. And there's an idea there that again, you have the will spinning on earth around and around, not really servicing any purpose other than to be backbreaking. And the fact that it's spinning in a horizontal fashion, it would represent of course, a will that would also be spinning in the heavens in the same horizontal fashion. Okay. So that's the idea there, right? So th- there's a there's kind of almost a correlation there and there's a correlation of the progression of things or the progression of time. You see. So when you look at the time sequence in this particular scene, um you start to see again by the work of his hand and it takes you back again to when Thulsa Doom chops off Conan's mother's head. Uh, with his, and he's got his two henchmen on the side, one holding an axe, the other one holding a hammer, which of course they're supposed to be deities, right? Because Thulsa Doom himself is a demigod, but he's this black, you know, or, or he's more, he's a more, he's a more demigod, M-O-O-R, and, uh, he's got this, these two Caucasian, uh, lesser gods on his side. It's, it's a whole lot of symbology in this to kind of pick up on, but, um, in any event, so we, we have, again, you know, he's on this wheel of pain and they're just pushing and the spokes 
of the wheel. They're all in between and they're pushing next to each other, but they're separated by the spokes, you know, and um, it, it represents, of course, the misuse of ourselves. And sometimes the things that we do that appear to kind of render or reap no real value for us, but we just have to do it. You know, some of the things we go through in life that are hard and backbreaking. And if, and when you look at the footage of him pushing on his will, he never lifts his head, really. So he's just pushing the whole time. He's got his hands in front of him, pushing. It's like these big spokes that come out. He's got his hands and every child has their hands on a spoke and they're pushing. And um, he's just looking down at the ground. So we see that this is like a this is symbolic of being trapped in a certain kind of experience or a certain kind of world and not being able to see the past behind you and not being able to see the future in front of you. Just grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding. For what reason? We don't know. You know, so there's an idea that, you know, being and he's chained to it. So it's like you're a slave to your grind and you're a slave to even materialism in a degree. And it's just like this constant pushing of this of this will. It does some very interesting things. It creates a certain reputation in that now Conan becomes stronger, you know, because he's pushing this thing. And and eventually what happens is that all the other children fall off from being able to work this will. And he's the last one. And this is over years. So when all of this starts, he's like eight or nine years old. And then eventually, you know, like I think it's like 15 years, something like that passes. He's in his 20s and he's still pushing this will that all these people push together. He's now pushing it by himself, you know, so he becomes this this massive hulk of 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 muscle and physicality, you know, from having to repeat this action over and over and over and over and over and again and his will to continue forward you know it kind of transmutates his body into something that is is powerful now even though he doesn't truly know his own power yet which we'll get into and you know we see we see that they put that in the in the film on purpose because this symbology the symbolism of that later independent there's like a, a necklace and a pendant that Conan wills, uh, re- wears, excuse me, and it's a will, right? So that will represents Dharma or, you know, what you do to fulfill your purpose in life, right? That's, that's what that will represents. So it's, it's a connection in that sense of, again, like I said, it's horizontal. So there are things turning in the heavens and there are things turning on earth. You know, and there's and there's still a progression, even though it may not feel like it, because what you're doing is just backbreaking and, you know, it just feels like it's just destroying you. But in fact, it's making you stronger and more prepared for what's coming next in your life. Right. So that's a significant thing, because when we look at, again, um, some of the trials that we go through in life sometimes and we don't realize that what we're doing is really on our path to becoming what we're supposed to be or is our path to maybe our greatness or our path to fulfilling our ultimate purpose, right? So he's refining himself on that will. You could almost call it the will of refinement. And through him pushing, 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 you know, there's a new kind of discipline 
that's forming inside of him. And um, he's he's learning struggle and he's learning um, willpower outside of the conventions of economy of, of financial economy. Now, that's a very important point in all of this. Very important point. Right. So what happens is the kid who there was a redhead kid who kind of was one of his watchers when he first got put on the wheel, when he was first captured by Thulsa Doom. And this same individual comes one day and um, purchases or takes Conan and he puts him into fighting pits because now he's big and strong and, you know, he can he, he survived out of everyone. But he's like he still has like the mind of a child, you know, and he's 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 almost like an animal. He's got this long hair, but he's humongous. You know, I mean, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger and we, we're not. For those of you who may be a little younger, you know, you may only remember Arnold Schwarzenegger as being an older governor. But, you know, um, at one point, you know, he was, you know, he was the epitome of what you would say for someone who was huge and muscular because he really mastered the use of steroids, you know, um, as, as a bodybuilder, you know. And, of course, you have people like Lou Ferrigno and Tony Atlas and you know, um, Ron Johnson, there was, there was a lot of other people, but, um, you know, he was the man when it came to really mastering how to use steroids. And of course he was made in a laboratory anyway. That's, but that's a whole nother story, but it actually fits into this story too, because this story is about race. This story is about transformation. This story is about struggle. And when you understand Arnold Schwarzenegger's relationship to race, and his family's lineage to one of the most nefarious racial regimes that ever existed on the planet. Um, and I say nefarious not in terms of them being the worst, but just probably most noted and acknowledged. Uh, then you'd understand why, okay, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger would do a, a movie about race. Yeah, that makes sense. But, um, so, like I said, he he becomes a slave fighter, and as as a or, or he be, he they put him in the fighting pit, and he discovers that hey, I can fight and and I like violence and and I like hearing the crowd cheer for me, and um, they then train him later as well. Like he and this is the important part: he's not only trained in swordplay, and of course he's trained by uh, Asians. You know, which is always a part of the racial thing in a lot of these movies, especially back in the 80s. You know, like you go to the Kung Fu master, you know. So he's trained by these Asians. But here's the important things that they only just kind of sprinkled in there. And he really wants you to catch it. He's trained in swordplay. But he was also, he said it was made available to him. Philosophy and poetry. So when you study Conan, when you read the books, you realize that he was like a brilliant person. You know, yeah, he was he was savagely violent, but um, he knew he, he studied a bunch of different languages. He knew philosophy. He knew art. He knew poetry. You know, he was the fullness of what a man is in that sense. You know, you start to realize that uh, there are certain things that can exist in the same space at the same time. You know, you don't have to be a brute or be an intellectual. They can blend together. That's why I say it's 
very important work to watch and pay attention to. Um, reading the Conan books, I know for me, as a younger man, helped me a lot in understanding what stoicism is and also the independent value and nature of being a man, right? So one of the things that happens with Conan too over the years is that it says not only was this art and work made available to him, but they also used him for breeding. They said that he was bred to the finest stock. So he learned what they, what they call the pleasures of women. He learned the pleasures of women. Now, again, another, another important piece, because you see it's like almost like a Willie Lynch idea in there that he's bred, that he's, he's kept around or he's utilized for the purposes of breeding. Right. Um, now, he has this whole experience, right? And he's a, he's a pit fighter. And it's like he's had more fights than he can recall at this point. And he's known for like, just, you know, you can't beat him. He's, he's Conan, right? The, 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 the barbarian, you know? And um, they're at a meeting once, not a meeting, but they're gathering around and like you have all these war generals and chiefs around. And one of them asks, uh, I need some more incense. Uh, one of them ask, what, like, what is the greatest thing in life? And he's like disappointed at his son because his son is talking all these happy stuff. You know, falcons, wind in your hair, da, 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 da. And Conan, and this was his first, you know, we're, we're like well into the movie. You know, at this point, we're probably like 25 minutes into the movie and we have not heard him speak yet, which is an important part. You know, I know I'm, I'm moving around a little bit, but. That's an important aspect of stoicism, you know, in really understanding manhood. It's not, it's not chatty. You know, there's, there's a quietness. Now, of course, when you try to understand what stoicism it is, it primarily, you know, you'll, you'll read things where it'll talk to you about basically being able to suffer in silence and things like that. But I mean, all men suffer in silence. You know, the journey of manhood is, is not a pretty one. It's, it's a hard one point blank it's a hard one for anyone who's truly going through that journey and it's very few who are that's why when you have a movie like conan it's you know he's he's a singular point but when they say the warlord is like what's best in life and conan is like to crush your enemies to see them driven before you and to hear the lamentations of their women right like key line of the whole movie you can't have conan the barbarian without remembering that line you know, to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women. So you see, he's just Ogun. Like this just, it's just Ogun. He's pure Ogun, right? So shortly after that, his quote unquote master, his slave maker frees him, right? And we're not really told why, but you know, we're kind of, it's hinted that, you know, you can you can have an animal for too long you know like conan has gotten to the point his master sees it and i'm like he doesn't know what the heck if he's a human or, or what because he's just he's like an animal so um you know you, you your next scene you see he's running through through the plains and he's got a pack of wolves chasing him now what i thought was always really cool about this scene is that you see Conan, when he gets to the top, he, he goes into this tomb, which is very deep, very deep symbolism there. But um, he's running. He's got a chain still on his leg, representing the things that he's still chained to in life. 
you know, the things that are, that are still keeping him where he's at. So he's, you know, his master cut the chain. He cut the lock, but he left a large part of the chain still on him. So he's walking around and running with this chain and he's running from the, from the wolves. And, um, he goes into like this underground, we'll, we'll call it underground, but it was like, he went up and then went down. He went into a tomb, um, to get away from the wolves, right? He found, he found his rock formation. He ran, he runs inside of it. Now, what was kind of cool about that scene is that Arnold Schwarzenegger fell and like almost really critically injured himself during that scene. So when you see him get up to the, the top of the thing, of the uh, formation, He's got all his blood on his arm. That was actually his blood. Uh, what happened was that he fell backward because the dogs were really chasing him. And he, I guess he really thought that they were going to get him. I, I don't know if things got out of hand or, you know, he just, I don't know. But he was, he really was running for real, for, for real for his life and ended up falling on the rocks and uh, cut himself really bad and almost like hurt his back really bad. So he was really hurt after that scene and he was bleeding and they were like, no, just keep it. We'll use that. You know? Um, so anyway, so yeah, he runs into the tomb and of course the tomb is important because the tomb represents going into the underworld. Right? So he goes, I feel like I'm doing too much of a breakdown now, but anyway, he goes into the underworld, if you will, or that, that subconscious mind back into that unconscious place. Long story short, he finds a sword in there, right? There's, there's, there's a throne of a King in there. And obviously it was his tomb. So the skeleton is sitting there and there's a, there's a sword in his, in that particular king's hand. And he hits the sword on a rock and, um, you know, it frees this sword. Like he realized, oh, this is still sword inside of it. And he says, crumb, you know, in a movie, that's mainly what he's saying. Like crumb, crumb, crumb is his God. And in the original text, the, the tomb that he saw that was actually supposed to be Krom, you know, his God, but they just, you know, they never really specified who it was, but you know, um, that idea of that cave represents, you know, going into a place where you face yourself. So whenever you see that, it's like, you know, we all have our own demons and we all have our own monsters inside of us. And in order for us to finally unleash our own power, whether they be natural or supernatural, everybody has to face their own demons. Most people never do that, so they never really unleash anything. They just talk about, oh, I'm this, I'm that, and I'm that. I'm that. And then they're none of those things. Because when you see people who are still enslaved to their ego and still enslaved to their addictions and, and things like that, you're looking at a person who's unrealized. It doesn't matter what they say to you. It doesn't matter how much they... Because usually people like that are the first ones to tell you that I'm this, I'm a great warrior, I'm a great warlock, I'm, I'm the one, I'm the messiah, I'm this and that. They're none of that. You have to go into that, that cave of yourself. You know, in Ifa we have the Ibeje, or really we look at the sacred Odu of Osa Meji, and it speaks about that facing the darkness. And that's that idea of, of going into the cave to face yourself, you know, but, um, so he goes into, into that, into that cave. And then when he comes out, he takes the sword and he breaks. The, and it's a really cool scene the way he does it. You know, after he frees himself, um, now he truly becomes the initiate that's moving forward in, into, um, into the world. 
and he cuts the in one one strike like he doesn't even look at it and he cuts the shackle from his leg you hear the dogs bark and they start to run to him and in the next scene you see him walking with all his dog fur all over his body and his sword is sheathed and like, he's just got a complete dog fur fit right so um again very significant piece in that sense now going forward um and again we're talking about this is all this is all how you create military right now why do i say that because well we'll get to it man i don't want to give you that yet <laughs> so he's still looking to avenge his 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 parents death you know so he's walking he comes along with who basically a woman who's a banshee uh long story short uh they do sex magic you know he's like i'm looking for these double-headed snakes and um and you notice the whole time he's quiet he doesn't say anything see that's stoicism that's really how men should be with women she's like come on and don't you want to warm yourself by my fire and you know basically don't you want to you know hit this and um he goes inside of her place he's not talking the whole time he's suspicious and she's like i'll tell you what you're looking for but there's a price and what's the price? He's got to have sex with her. So essentially what happens is when she orgasms, she transforms into this demon, right? It's sex magic. And, you know, he realizes that he, she tries to bite him and, and attack him. And he takes her and throws her into a fire. They had a fire going. And she releases her physical frame. And she goes laughing off into the night as like a ball of fire, right? So, you know, not a, a big critical scene, but it's important just in the understanding of how a lot of times men don't know how to interact with women. They really, there's, there's a lot to that. You know, there's a lot to that. They really don't know what's in front of them. You know, and I should tell you that the movie starts off with a quote, uh, quote excuse me, from uh, Frederick Nietzsche, and it's, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. You know, so that's an important kind of um, quote in that sense, uh, just in terms of the whole context of what's happening and even the riddle of steel, which you'll which you'll understand soon. So, you know, so like, yeah. So she tells him you have to go to, to Zamora and, um, you know, what you're looking for is there. And that happens like right before he has to throw her, throw her off of him and throw her into the fire and everything like that. Right. So he's on his way to Zamora, you know, after he gets the, the demon basically, uh, offer himself off of himself. And along the way, he meets an individual who's tied like to some stones, basically like something happened to him. And, you know, he's like, the guy's like, yeah, give me some food, man. Let me, at least so I have enough strength to fight off the, um, you know, the wolves when they come. And now this was a real cool part of the movie. I felt, uh, I thought maybe it was cool. Maybe it was something else, but, uh, the individual who shackled his name is Subutai. Okay. Now the reason why I say that that was, that was, uh, that was cool because I don't know if any of you have ever studied like Genghis Khan, but you know, um, Genghis Khan had a war general. And his name was Subutai. Subutai was a real person, you know, and um, 
he and his brother and two other people made up what they called the warhead of uh, Genghis Khan's, you know, war machine. You know, so Subutai was like uh, an incredible general and strategist. He actually uh, joined Genghis Khan's army when he was 14, you know, and he rose to the highest rank inside of Genghis Khan's militaristic empire that you could rise to without being a blood relative. You know, like he was his skill and his ability was 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 undeniable. And he did all of it in about 10 years, you know. So, um, you know, he was partnered with an, with another general and um, they were they were all called, the you know, the four of them, they were called the dogs of war. So if you ever want to learn about like the Mongol Empire and, and different generals and stuff, you're going to come across Subutai. Right. So I thought Subutai, I thought that was kind of cool, you know, that they threw that in there, you know, and I'm just different reasons. I'm sure why he kind of did that. But, um, you know, either way. So he finds Subutai and he's like, well, what are you like? Who are you? No, he says, who are you? And Subutai is like, I am Subutai. You know, of course, he's got to talk like that because it's the 80s. So, you know, they got to everything's got to be over the top, you know, um, super racist. No, I am super tight. And he's like, you know, I am a warrior and a thief. Another critical piece in this work. They were all thieves. Conan's whole crew, they were all thieves. And for you to understand that, go back to the segment I did some time ago. Uh, on the four personality archetypes where I talked about the warrior, the thief, um, um, you know, the priest, the, 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 the warrior, the thief, the wizard, the clergy, you know, um, and I broke down what each one of those represents in a necessity. But that thief is that innovator. The thief is always like, why can't we, you know, um, as opposed to looking at the rules that have been put in front of him. So his first comrade that he takes on is a thief. Someone who's saying like, yeah, let's let's try it. <laughs> you know, let's see what happens. Let's try it. You know, so, you know, that that's another important piece. Um, you know, the way he found them and um, and then they have a conversation about deities and stuff. I won't get into that because that's not really uh, a part of what we're dealing with. Right. So um, essentially they go into the cities, which was another important piece there because again remember conan has been like breeding with the best of women and they go into the city and he's like man it stinks because super is like it's civilization it's very dangerous and and conan was like well let's not let's not waste time let's go check it like he wants to check it out and um there's a lot there's a lot to that scene to really understand about the stoic life of a man and that value of living on the outskirts or living outside of quote unquote civilization. Like there's even a scene where Conan is eating something, you know, with some kind of little animal. And Conan is like, oh, this is good. And Subutai is like, you don't know how long it's been there. That was such a, a key scene to really speak about like, yeah, you're not eating fresh food. You're not eating something you just caught off the plane. You don't know how long that's been there, right? So essentially, and there's a scene where they, they go into a city and you know, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's still looking for the snakes, you know, and they, and they get a lead on it. But there's a certain scene where there's some women there and they're, they're basically prostitutes. And Conan is like, ah, they are sluts. 
there are sluts, <laughs> you know, which is a very interesting scene, you know, because there's nothing in there that's not intentional. So you're, you're seeing these constant sexual overtones, you know, and why certain things are brought brought into place. Right. Uh, the women, you know, there's prostitutes offering themselves and things like that. And he's ah, they are sluts, <laughs> you know. So um, long story short. They find the snake um, tower and they go to, to they like, yeah, we're going to go into it. It's supposed to be all these riches in there. Right. And they meet up with another thief by the name of Valeria, who's supposed to be a Valkyrie. And so now you have three, three forces. That's that's an important people, you know, um, and they go into um, they go into the temple. He, he fights a snake. They get some some jewels that are in there and whatnot. And um, then they work their way out. Right. They fight their way out, basically. So I'm, I'm not going to hit every single point, but I, I want to hit this point. So I'm going to I'm going to pause the story a little bit to give you some understanding of where we're going. So. And I'm going to try not to take too much longer because we're pushing almost an hour soon. Right. So what happens here is that. When I tell you this is about child soldiers, this is the making of a perfect soldier. We haven't even gotten we haven't gotten to the crescendo yet of what truly makes uh, that soldier. Right. In the Western sense. So you get this individual and you fill him with all this bitterness and pain. You kill his parents. You destroy his culture. You see, you take his God from him almost in a sense. But you control you. You, you take his history. You take his culture. Now, this takes us back to 1984, doesn't it? Right. Um, but you remove all understandings of history from him. Right. And you just treat him like he's an, he's an animal. He's nothing but really a commodity. That's it. But even though he still sits outside of the world of commerce. See, this is one of the things that made Conan so powerful was that he was not a slave to commerce. You know, he went to the city and he's like, he didn't, he was like a child. You know, he didn't understand about anything really, you know, in, in, in that place. But you create this emotional or this emotionless individual. Um, and that's a form of stoicness, but there's all this pain that's inside of them because of what you've created. Um, so I want to just, give you that that background he's, this is a, this is a man who yes he's sleeping with women and he's eating different kind of foods and he's killing dogs and things like a hard life just a hard life all the way and all the while he's living with the pain of watching his parents be killed right in front of him now i'm going to give you the other important part of this remember we're talking about thalsa doom these were some warlike people they were war. His crew was warlike. I want you to remember that point. They were warlike. Right. So now let's go back to the whole um, the snakes thing. Of course, they go into the, the cult and the cult. He comes to find out when he's looking at the symbols inside of that snake tower that this was the same cult that raided his village as a child, murdering all his people. You see all of the devotees now, they're all dressed in white robes and they're chanting and things like that. Now, that's a very important piece 
you know, that's a very important piece. And that because what it's speaking about there is that you have these organizations that are actually truly and originally militaristic. And then what happens is that they wage these fierce militaristic campaigns. And then later they come off as like they're, they're hippies almost. They come off as like they're all about peace. It's very similar to the movie 1984 where the Ministry of, of, of Peace is actually the war faction. The Ministry of Love actually tortures people, right? So you have this idea in the actual film that um, some of these organizations that present themselves as loving organizations or these cults that present themselves there's always this transformation that we started as warring marauders. You need to understand that point, that point right there. You need to understand that. And then you can understand how nations, after they kill people, eradicate people, enslave people, and commit the, the, the most horrific atrocities against people, will then later call themselves peace-loving nations. You, you, this movie breaks it down for you. And you got to remember that one of the things about this particular film and this time period, this movie came out in 1982. So during this time, there were a lot of films. This was the Ronald Reagan era, but there was a lot of films that came out and they primar primarily their job was to counteract some of the work of the 1960s of the whole hippie movement. So when you watch this movie Conan, you see hippies. Dulce Doom's followers are all young children, all of these young, attractive um, Caucasian girls. Very, 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 very significant point. And it, and the, the whole race thing is a side point to what, what I'm really talking about is how you create a child soldier. But um, there's some there's some pieces in here that you just really cannot ignore. You know, you'd be a fool to ignore it, um, especially in understanding this was around the same time that Rocky three came out. Right. And you might say, what does Rocky three have to do with, you know, uh, uh, um Conan the Barbarian. I'll, I'll explain it. Right. So essentially, like I say, they, they, they see something or they, they, they thief something by the, that's called the eye of the serpent. Conan and Subutai, they kill this like 50 foot snake and, um, they get this jade medallion that, you know, is, is the logo or the symbol for Thalsa Doom. And that's when Thalsa Doom realizes, I mean, I'm sorry, that's when Conan realizes like, yo, these are, the same, you know, these are the same ones. Now, I should also say that Thulsa Doom represented a set called the, the cult of Set, S-E-T, Set, okay? So that one is should be pretty easy for a lot of you have been listening to me for a long time. You know who Set is, you know who Osir is, you know who Oset is, you know who Heru is, right? So you see the, inter the intertwining, right? So we now see that there's a there's a partnership between Conan, Subutai, and Valeria. You know, and they, they, they are three thieves that work well together. They get all this money from what they stole out of the um temple and then they go on like, you know, they're gonna do the town up, man. They you know, they 
they're getting drugs, you know, what they call the Black Lotus. They're getting drugs, they're getting liquor, having sex. Conan and Valeria, they begin a relationship with each other. They pretty much actually fall in love. And what happens is that after a while, what happens, they find themselves surrounded by a king's soldiers. Long story short, right? So basically, the person's name is King Osric. Now, for the race piece, this, is, this gives you some of your big clues in all of this. King Osric. Where's my water? I'm almost done. I'm almost done with this jug. So, King Osric is, is a very interesting character in, in this experience because what happens is that we find out, you know, when, he, when they bring him into the court and they're thinking that, like, you know, they're going to they're gonna kill them because maybe he had something to do with the, you know, what was taken and things like that. But what it actually really is is that um, King Osric's daughter, Yasmina, Yasmina, that's a Hebrew name, Yasmina. You, today you call it Jasmine, but Yas, Yah, Yah, Yasmina. Yasmina is taken as a slave to Thalsa Doom. Now, this, this is when it becomes critical <laughs> because you got to remember Thalsa Doom is like, James L. Jones is like the only um, melanin rich character in the entire movie. Hit all of his followers are, are Caucasian. And the majority of what we see in his followers, majority, the ones that are close and like in his inner court, whenever we see images of like his temple, they're all these, these young, attractive Caucasian girls. Right? And one of the things that said and this is this is like where you get the this is where it gets it gets really um fun <laughs> uh from a racial perspective is that um you know it's it's King Osric. Like you can hear the, the hurt as he's explaining how um Thalsa Doom or or basically what he talks about is how his daughter has fallen under the spell of Thalsa Doom, you know. Um, and King Oslo, Osric was played by um, Max Sido, Max von Sido, something like that, but Max Sido. But he, he, he employs the three as like mercenaries because he's like, if you could sneak into the palace and steal those gems, then I know you can sneak in and get my, my daughter. But here's the issue. Most of the time when you hear about a virgin princess, it's a sacrifice. And specifically, that's not the issue here, that his daughter is going to be sacrificed. What he says is that he took my daughter and 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 she will be his. The issue is that James L. Jones, Dulce Doom, is going to bed. He's going to sex King Osric's daughter. That's the issue. Okay. Now, again, I want to take you to another movie that came out in 1982, Rocky III. This is why I said earlier, like, well, what does it have to do with, <laughs> you know, there's a famous scene 
and Rocky, right? That I I loved as 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 a as a younger person watching. I thought it was so cool when you know when they're when he's getting his statue uh, revealed to him. They're in Philadelphia, and um, you know, and you know, again, you should you should kind of get a sense when you know when we're talking about Rocky, you know, and Sylvester Stallone is cool. You know, I got I got no issues. With, with Sylvester Stallone, but you know, there's a lot of fantasy. And I mean, and, and even he even said that, you know, he was talking about one time the uh, fight with, um, uh, God, what is that kid's name? The Irish dude. Why is it slipping my mind? Conor McGregor. Maybe he's Scottish. But anyway, um, and he was talking about that. And and they were asking, well, who do you think is going to win? And he was like, come on, you know who I'm going for. I'm going for the underdog. And he was like, and of course, everybody knows I live in fantasy land anyway. And I thought that was a that was a cool little thing he said to TMZ, like, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, there's a scene in Rocky Three where they're doing that that unveiling of the statue of Rocky in, in Philadelphia, and you know, Rocky's he. You know, they're saying that he's not running from Clubber. Clubber Lang is Mr. T. He was played by Mr. T in that particular film. And he was real animalistic. Like, he, he had, like, no vocabulary. He's just grunt. Even when he's fighting, he's like... <laughs> and that's basically how Conan was. Like, his first couple lines in the movie was... Just, ah! Ah! <laughs> that's the only sound he made. But, you know, um, Clubber Lang is just like... <laughs> You know, what's your prediction for the for the tonight? For for the fight tonight, Clubber? Pain. You know, like he doesn't he doesn't have any kind of vocabulary. Let me get some more water here. My vocal cords are running out of steam. Okay. So there's a thing that Clubber Lang says, you know, um, to Adrian, who's Rocky's wife, which is what really made Rocky want to fight him. Because Mickey, his trainer, was like, don't fight him, Rock. He's going he's gonna to beat you behind. He's an animal. You better stay out of that. Leave that alone. Don't do not do it. And Club Lang, he, he shows up at the unveiling of the statue, and he goes there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. But, you know, Melanin Rich Men, Back in the days, which is so much different than how they are now. And I just, I miss the enthusiasm. I miss the, the charisma and the enthusiasm of how brothers were. But, you know, he turns to Adrian and he says, Hey, woman, I bet you dream about having a real man. Bring your pretty little self over to my apartment tonight. I'll show you, I'll show you uh, what a real man is. And Rocky went crazy when he said that. He went crazy. He said, I'll show you a real man. <laughs> you know, so now we get into the into the ISIS papers. We get into uh, Francis Crest Welsing now. When we're looking at the lamentations of King Osric saying, he's going to take my daughter. She will be his. See, now we get into that Noir Mel territory, the book. And and the music project that I did. Now we're getting into that, right? So it's this fear of genetic annihilation. 
that we're talking about now, right? We get into Birth of a Nation, 1914 with D.W. Griffith. Now we're talking about that, you know. But the biggest problem with King Osric is not even that he's going to kill my daughter. He's going to sleep with my daughter. He's going to put his big black dingus inside of my daughter. The same thing with Rocky Three. It's not that you insulting me and you telling me I can't fight, but you you are now coming on to my wife. And Adrian wasn't like, oh, my goodness. She just like, huh, huh, interesting. You know, so it's that idea there again of the fear, fear of a black penis. And what you understand with with Conan. That was the secondary. That was the secondary theme of the whole movie. That's why. Thalsa Doom, because if you read the books, Thalsa Doom is is not a melanin rich man. He's he's a half dead or what they call an undead sorcerer. But we we learn even by looking at the film that he's actually a god. You know, of course, we see him transform into a snake and stuff at another time. But when we hear King, see King Osric, he told like he 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 snitched, he ratted, he said everything. He said this demigod. Thalsa Doom. He called him a demigod. He, he, he let the cat out the bag. So we realize there's something different about Thalsa Doom. We also realize that the issue is that he's going to sleep with my daughter who's fallen under his spell. Who's fallen under his spell. So we're obviously talking about a sexual spell because when you see them and like their temples, they're all half dressed. There's that scene towards the end where it's like it's a it's an orgy. And then there's also a cannibalist thing in there. They're eating they're eating humans. So there's that aspect as well. Right. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Right. So essentially, King Osric was like, yo, you know, um, I'll give you I'll pay you anything you want. Get my daughter. And he gives him some rubies right there on the excuse me, right there on the spot. So. Conan's comrades are like, let's just take these rubies and get out of here. Because Thalsa Doom is not something to play with. He's like, he's clever lang. So let's just leave that alone. Take these rubies. Let's get out of town. Conan's not trying to hear it because he's like, man, he, he's, this dude killed my family. Like, no, we, well, at least I. So basically what he does is he leaves in the middle of the night. He leaves them and he goes to fight them by himself. An important scene. That's a very important piece. Right. Because he's got that Ogun nature. You know, I'm going to take this head on, man, and I'm going to I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to rip this dude's head off. Right. So. What happens is. Long story short, um, Conan meets another wizard by the name of Akiro. And it's getting some more racist stuff there, you know, um, some against Asians there. But, um, you know, he meets Akiro and. And Akiro is, is, um, you know, like basically he explains some things about, about, you know, the, the sect or the cult of Thalsa Doom. And, he, you know, we start to understand that, okay, well, you know, they're basically, like I said, they're basically hippies, you know. And with that being said, Conan now disguises himself as much as Arnold Schwarzenegger can as one of the young people who's looking to join the cult of um 
Thalsa Doom or the Set Cult, right? So this is where it gets it gets important and interesting. Uh, very interesting. Another critical point. So there's a scene where he meets a high priest from that sect, and um, the high priest is a, is a predator. He's a sexual predator. So he sees Conan, and this is where you see that there's a sexual kind of theme to all this. He sees Conan, and Conan, I mean, it's kind of funny because it's like you don't picture Arnold Schwarzenegger this way, but he's like, what's the matter, brother? And he's like, I am scared. You know, he's like, I want to go, but I am scared. So the guy is like, you know, um, he's like, oh, someone as big and strong and well-developed as you. So he's clearly a dissexual, but he's a predatory dissexual because he's supposed to be a priest. And so so Conan is like, is there some place we can talk where no one can see us? You know, he's like, can we talk over there where no one can see? And, you know, my Austrian accent isn't really there, but, you know, you get what I'm saying. I'm, 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 I'm riding out the story, which I'm trying to bring you there. So he's like, yeah, sure, sure. Let's go over there. You know, thinking that, you know, now they, they're going to, you know, it's going to be some dookie loving. And, um, so Conan's like, hey, so is that the only robe that you have? And basically, long story short, he, he, he beats him up or knocks him out, kills him. One of Because, you know, back in the 80s, one shot, the guy's out. We don't know if he's knocked out, dead, or what. That's just how the 80s was. So he hits him, the guy falls out. I think he hits him twice. And he takes his robes and put them on, puts them on. So now you see that this cult is a cult of sexual immorality. So they went from being these violent marauders to being these, these sexual deviants who are now preying on people. And, and the deviance I'm referring to is the predatorial nature, right? We can add all the other stuff in there however you want, depending on what your spiritual moral perspective is. But these are, you know, they're supposed to be peace-loving hippies, but this whole movement is built underneath a war machine, <laughs> So much knowledge in there for you. How do you make a soldier that goes into a foreign country and brutalizes and tortures other people? Where you get where you get reports of soldiers from this country going into other countries and raping citizens? Where did that anger and where and where did that sense of abuse come from? It's all intentional. They know how to create the perfect soldier. You create an individual that has so much violence, so much anger pent up inside of them, and then you introduce a sexual element where now you violate them sexually. Then you put a gun on their hand and then you send them out to go do your dirty work. What happens? They become the most vicious, the most, most violent, the most heartless, uncaring soldier that you could, that you could ever ask for. You see, that's how you make a soldier in this this hemisphere, in this culture. So long story short, because that's the main part of what we're talking about. That's what I want you to focus on. Um, he, inf he infiltrates Thalsa Doom's space. Uh, he gets caught. Right. He's wearing the priest robes. They crucify him. Now, you should understand that, you know, back in the days, crucifixion was was common. It's not. Most times people think crucifixion, they're like, oh, Christ. But a lot of people were crucified, you know. 
So they, they put him on with the Tree of Laws. Now let's go back to the Riddle of Steel for a second. So during that time, Dulce Dooms, he talks about the Riddle of Steel. Like Conan says, you killed my father, you killed my mother. You know, when they cut, when they cut, they beat him up and then they're holding him. And, um, Dulce, Dulce Doom, then it's, he's like, he was like, whoa, and those, like, he's basically just like, yeah, you're probably right. Cause back in those days, I was, you know, I was, I was wild. Like, it's basically what he said. You know, and he's like, you know, I was searching for steel. That's a critical thing that he was saying. And, and then he was like, yeah, the riddle is still. And Conan is like, the riddle of steel. And Thulsa was like, yeah, you want to know what it is, don't you? You want to know what it is? Shall I tell you? So he was like, it's the least I can do. You know, because he's like, I'm about to kill you. So <laughs> the least I could do is tell you the riddle of steel. So that way you can answer it to, um, you know, Krum in, in the halls of Bahala. So he says, yeah, steel isn't strong. Flesh is stronger. He was like, check this out. And he calls to like one of the pretty girls who's on the top. And he was like, come to me, my child. Come, come. Come to me. <laughs> James Earl Jones is, is so masterful. And the girl just leaps off of the uh, cliff and falls to her death. And, and then he turns to Conan. He's like, now that's strength, boy. That's power. He said, what is, what is steel compared to the person who wills to steal? So he was like, the strength of your body and the desire of your heart. He said, I gave that to you. And it's a waste. And then he's like, now you can contemplate that on a tree of woe. He's like, crucify him. <laughs> so what Dulce is saying is that strength is not, is not an external experience, but it's internal. It's within the heart. And all of the, 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 the heart, the, the pain and the trauma that he put Conan through is what made him stronger than steel. You know, so losing his parents and all the things that he had to overcome and all the pain and all the hurt and being a warrior and being a, and, and being a wounded warrior is why he's stronger. You know, um, now that's a theory. Because I would say that Thulsa Doom didn't, that was his answer for his, see, the, the, the key, the secret, the secret was when Conan's father said, you must learn its discipline. And he said, you know, he said, <coughs> excuse me, um, you must learn its riddle, Conan. You must learn it. So what that means is that I can't tell you the answer to the to the riddle still. For everybody, the answer is different. But you have to go through this. For everyone, the process is pretty much the same. You're going to go through a journey and a trial, but your answer is going to be different. Now, you compare that with a lot of times when people ask me questions. You hear it on segments sometimes, and I ask them a question right back. And they're like, why won't you just give me the answer? Some things don't work that way. Some things don't work that way. Sometimes there's multiple answers, but I know if you've gone through the journey or not. Because it's easy to jump and be like, oh, I know the answer. Not if you haven't been through the journey. You don't know the answer, no. But you have to, you have to figure it out for yourself. So the most a teacher can do is send you on the actual journey. This is the road you got to go down. This is the journey you got to go down. Your answer is down there. It's almost like Yoda and Luke, you know, when they were on the, the Dagobah planet and, and he sent them into that cave, again, the cave. And he was like, you know, you don't need your lightsaber. He was like, you know, he made him face his darkness. <coughs> Excuse me, goes back to that again. Ah, 
Okay. All right, so we come into the to the to the closing because this is uh we're about an hour and twenty minutes, about the same as the last segment. So we have again the concept, right? So he catches him, crucifies him. His friends come and find him. <clears throat> so he dies. They they find him right before he dies. Um, they resurrect him. Right, they use um, the wizard Akiro. He uses runes. He puts on on Conan's body and certain incantations, brings him back to life. Uh, and there's a lot to that whole scene. I just don't want to, you know, like I don't want to go through everything. But um, so now, <clears throat> um, now he he's ready to go back at Thalsa Doom. But see, he's different now. He's been reborn now. It's different, right? Um, because, ah, I'll, I'll leave that part out. Um, now what happens is he sneaks into the mountain to get back. Now, here's a critical thing about that. He's going to get uh, Yasmina, and he also wants to obviously kill these people. He's still on that same mission. He's feeling that level of vengeance, but I'm going to tell you the difference here is that he's not going by himself. He's going with his comrades. So what he learned through that death and that rebirth, <clears throat> he learned now strategy. He learned, you know, the value of of his relationships, the value of the people around him. And I was so critical because he's well on his way to now learning the riddle of still. <laughs> he doesn't know it yet. It's just like when he was pushing the wheel and he didn't know that he was building this strong body you know, in order to accomplish these feats, which again is like a reference to Hercules. But, um, so long story short, they go into the temple. <clears throat> um, there's a whole lot of things that are happening. That's where you see the cannibalism. Um, you see the orgy that's going on and they're coming in as thieves, proper thieves to do what they got to do. They, they end up getting Yasmina, <clears throat> but as a result, um, Valeria gets shot with a, with a snake arrow. You got to watch it to see, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rushing through it. And, um, what happens is they come back to the place where Kiro is, where it's like these runes. It's basically a graveyard, very spiritual place. Um, Valeria is dead at that point. And, um, you know, they use the princess's bait. Long story short, they have a big fight in the space. But there's a, there's a key scene, and I'm going to give this to the men. Because I found this scene to be very touching. And again, if you're a warrior man, you understand it. If you're not, it just was a scene, whatever. It was a scene before the action. <laughs> but for warrior men, you, 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 fit, you probably were like me. You felt it in your soul. But Conan, he's sitting there sharpening weapons and they're making traps and everything. They're getting their Rambo thing on, building all the traps and everything, getting ready to, to do what they got to do. Um, and you know what? Let me say this before that even scene. You see with this particular cult, you see that they're just very superficial. Right. So, yeah, it's all the sexuality. It's these armed guards. So even though they're supposed to be representing ancient archaic principles, they still very much or about the hollow shallowness of modernity. You see. And that's why Conan, it was very easy for him to infiltrate them. So you basically just see that 
they're full of crap. You know, and that was supposed to be a, a a shot at the hippies and the hippie movement. But anyway, there's a scene where Conan is sitting with Subutai and he's preparing like the weapons and their traps and everything. And he's like, I rem like you see, this is the only time where you kind of really see there's a peacefulness about him. And he says, I remember days like this. You know, these were days when my father used to take me to the forest. And he's like, we ate wild blueberries. And he says, that was more than 20 years ago. I was just four or five years old. And he was like, the leaves were so dark and green and, and the grass smelled sweet with the spring wind. And then he pauses and he says, and he's like, you could feel the pain. You could feel that pain. And he says, almost 20 years of pitiless combat. No rest, no sleep like other men. And yet the spring wind blows, Subutai. Have you ever felt such a wind? Ooh, that was a. If if if, if you've been through it, you know, you 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 had to, you had to, you had to gone through it to understand what was just said. And then, Supertie was like, yeah, they they blow where I live too. In the north of every man's heart. And then Conan is like, ah, oh, well, it's never too late. You know, and Supertie is like, no, nah, it would only bring me back here another day, and, and even worse company. And then Conan says a key line that every warrior has to understand. Key line. He says, for us, there is no spring. Just the wind that smells fresh before the storm. Such a pop. That exchange right there was, that could have been a whole nother movie. <laughs> that concept. You know, sometimes when when you... As a warrior, man, you know, sometimes you look at the lives and the experiences of, of other people and you say, man, why couldn't why couldn't I have that? You know, they, they seem to be so much at peace. And, you know, you sometimes you might look at other kind of, uh, you know, like nuclear uh, white picket fence and two and a half children and the little dog Rex or Spot. And, you know, you see him on these these advertisements and things and they just look so peaceful and and everything and. And you wonder, why can't you have a quote-unquote normal life? And like, you know, Conan said, for us, there is no spring. Just the wind that smells fresh before the storm. So th these are the only moments that we get of solace, of peace. Those of us who are of the warrior class. And yeah, that pain is there. Like when he's like almost 20 years of pitiless combat. No one took pity on me. I took pity on no one else. I got no rest. I got no sleep like other men. You know, that comparison between myself and, and other people, you see. And super ties like that experience is in the heart. You know, it's in the hearts of all men, really. But um, in the north of every man's heart. Yeah, you know, that, that north represents what you're aspiring to. You know, where that heaven, that, that higher place. And it's especially significant because Subutai has specified earlier um, in the movie that his God was the God of the sky. You know, so <laughs> a lot, a lot in that scene, right? So, long story short, they have a fight. Um, Conan kills the guy with the axe and with the hammer, uh, you know, because you know those, those are your Thor energies. They're supposed to be gods. It's almost like making 
and and you almost see like where these cults, these societies, they mimic deityhood. You see, it's it's such a deep thing. You got to really understand that these child soldiers, there's a sexual element, and they're they're kind of created out of this idea that what they're doing are peace missions, but they're they're militaristic campaigns. They're militaristic organizations and factions that create this illusion of um, of these peace machines, if you will. It's very deep. So anyway, so then he goes to Thulsa Doom's, um, uh, what's the faith? Thulsa Doom's temple after he kills, because Thulsa Doom gets away. He leaves the princess. The princess now realizes like, okay, this guy doesn't give a, give a hoot well this guy doesn't give a hoot about me um and he goes now to basically kill Thulsa Doom long story short which was a, this is a really important part Thulsa Doom sees him sneaking up pretty much sneaking up behind him and he knows he comes he's he's there to kill him and he's like look man he said I made you which was so key because when he killed his parents, you got to look at the cinematography. There's a scene when he kills his parents and you can you can almost see that now he becomes the new parent. And that scene, you know, you can see that's what the what the foreshadowing is. And Thulsa Doom, just so just let me add this in this scene, he's about to have all of the followers do a mass suicide. Right. So that's, you know, something to pay attention to, too. There's a lot there. Um. But yeah, when when he when he gets there, uh, Thulsa Doom basically like, you know, he tries to beguile him. He's like, listen, and he's calling him son. He was like, I made you son. You know, uh, <laughs> which is very significant to, you know, to have the only uh, melanin rich person in the entire movie saying to this this Austrian child of uh, i don't even talk about arnold schwarzenegger's parents right now well that's a whole nother segment but to say i made you this aryan man i made you son <laughs> and um arnold for half a second you almost think he's gonna fall for it. he's staring at him like he stared at his mother that time like he's getting ready to hypnotize him and arnold shakes it off i'm keep calling him arnold i'm sorry conan shakes it off quickly and why? Because Conan is not tethered to commerce. Conan is not tethered to civilization. Conan is not tethered to that structure. So you can't beguile him with that. He lives outside of that. That is the the stoicness and the integrity of the barbarian. He lives outside of all of that. You see, you see. So when sometimes I'm at lectures and I'm speaking and some of you come up to me and say, Chief, is there any way I can get in touch with you? Sometimes, you know, I just want I got ideas I want to share with you or when you're in town, look me up. I'm not here for that. That's not that's not my thing. And it's, you know, don't take offense at it. It's just not my, my nature. It's not the way I'm designed. I'm more likely to come to your town. And find an empty field somewhere and set up a tent and I could be five miles from your house. And I'm 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 more comfortable doing that. It's just the nature. It's the nature of the barbarian. Okay, so 
That's why Conan was able to shake that spell. So what he does in this scene, he cuts off Thulsa Doom's head, which is very significant because he broke his sword during the battle, but he keeps fighting with a broken sword. Very significant. He cuts off Thulsa Doom's head, shows it in front of all his followers, and then he just throws it down the temple steps. It just bounces like a soccer ball down the temple steps. And then eventually all the followers, they just kind of like disperse like, oh, the illusion's over. Oh, okay. And in that moment, Conan throws his sword down, down the steps as well, which was significant because not only is the quest over, but he also realizes in that moment that he's utilized different things to get to where he needs to be. And it doesn't mean, because it was a, obviously a Conan part two, it, it was horrible. Conan the Destroyer, Wilt Chamberlain, and it, 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 it sucked. And then, and then after that, there was uh, Red Sonja, which sucked even more, uh, which was supposed to be the third Conan, but he was like, I'm not doing this again. But they still put him in the movie, and he just played a, a, a character, a mercenary by the name of Kalidor. But anyway, so it's at that scene, you know, when he... When he throws down that sword at the end and, you know, now he's understanding something more about that, about that, that riddle of still and that moment. And he's recognizing it's that will that he had to push through or that development. You know, he learned the art of the sword, sword, but he also cultivated real bonds with other humans, you know, in Sabatai, uh, Subatai, excuse me, in Akiro and and valeria so it's that idea now that he's been able to find freedom from that quest by learning that he is the steel now this is a theory because we don't we don't know the riddles still <laughs> this is this is a theory he is the steel so just like when you see in the beginning of the movie the steel is being fashioned his father is a blacksmith now ironically subatai in real life subatai was a blacksmith his father was a blacksmith in real life, the, the, the Mongolian general. But we see that it was Conan who was the one who was being fashioned like steel the entire time. You see, um, and of course, towards at the end, he throws his sword. But then before the, the movie ends, like he's, you know, he has his sword with him again. And the princess is there, you know, Princess Yasmina. And he he like brings her away with him. Um, but she almost has a look on his face. Like she wants to worship him, you know, like, okay, well now you'll be my new God. And of course that's not, that's not Conan style. So, you know, he's not going for that, you know? So again, like I said, the, the thing that I really wanted to focus on is the idea that, um, it's the overcoming of your personal and inner, uh, adversities that makes you stronger than steel and life is that hammer that's pounding that steel and the fire so when he's so when conan's father it points to the sword and says this you can trust he's saying you can trust what you've earned the things that you gain in your life through your trials through your trauma through your struggle you know you've earned that those are yours just like this sword has been fashioned. So it's not the steel that we're trusting. Because see, Thulsa Doom was being ruled over by the steel. He hadn't mastered steel. 
At that time when he was searching, he's like, I was searching for steel. He was still being ruled over by senseless killing and, and, and things like that. So that was, that was a, a lower form of it, if, if you will. You know, um, but there are more important things in life. There was a scene with King Osric when he says, there comes a time, and he, he says, there comes a time, thief, <laughs> when the jewels cease to sparkle and the gold loses its luster. And when a throne room becomes an empty prison and all that is left is a father's love for his child. So he's showing you, yeah, you could take the money, take the rubies, take the gold. I don't care. I want my daughter. Because all I have is my love, my, my personal attachment, my bonding for my child. You see, now compare this to 1984 where pair bonding is, is literally outlawed. It's illegal. To pair bond with another individual. Think about the social distancing in 1984. Think about the social distancing in 2020. The discouragement of pair bonding. You see. Because there's a discouragement of natural biology. As we spoke about um, in the last work of 1984. Okay. So. Those are the points that I wanted to highlight, and there's so much more. There's so much more. Um, oh man, there's so much more. Because I didn't even get into the whole serpent aspect, the black sun. But again, you know, the serpents with the black sun, black moon. It's like public enemy fear of a black planet. That's really what was what was being said there. You know, again, that's why Thulsa Doom was the only melanin rich person in the whole movie, the villain. You know. Uh, similar to Rocky. Uh, of course, Rocky had, you had Apollo Creed there, but Apollo Creed was like dressed in suits all the time. And he was like, he was, he was more businessman. I mean, he was, a, of course, a magnificent boxer, but they presented him as more businessman than boxer. That was, that was on purpose. He completely assimilated. He was a house one, whereas Clubber Lang was a field one. He was the one, the dangerous one you had to look out for, you see. It's so much science in that movies that came out around this time. Um, they gave you a lot. You just had to kind of know what the agenda was. And, you know, you always want to know what what's going on around that time in the world. And, you know, um, what just finished going on, you know, things like that. And it helps you to kind of understand why the agenda is what it is. And then sometimes it also helps you to understand, too, like, um, did they get that off? <laughs> you know, when you when you look at where you are now and you say, you know, well, did it actually work? Did, did you know all the things that you're saying? And then when you hear things about when Reagan spoke, spoke about mourning in America. And what he was referring to was that he wanted to go back to the time before the civil rights movement, the 1950s. That's what you could you could probably Google that. You know, when I always say probably Google stuff, um, because I, I, most of the information that I share with you when it comes to this old stuff, I studied a long time ago. And a lot of it came from books and stuff like that. So now it's, it's great because everything, you know, everything's on, on, online now. So, you know, you don't have to go through all the crap that I went through <laughs> to, get, to get some information. So I'm going to assume if you probably did a search, um, you know, just Morning in America and, and Ronald Reagan or something like that, it would come up. But when he spoke about that, and this was in this was in 1984. It was it was 
his political campaign and he talked about uh, being there better and stronger America. That was before your, your MAGA. Let's make America great again. You probably think this is the first time this came around. This ain't the first time. This ain't the first time. You go back to 1984, with Ronald Reagan, you see, when he was talking about um, mourning in America and he was talking about going back to the, to the, the, the value of the 1950s. Well, what was happening in the 1950s? That was before the civil rights movement, Jim Crow, segregation, you know, um, even before the women's movement. You see, that's what he was talking about going back to. <laughs> so you got to sometimes be able to uh, understand it. Again, like I always say, some people have long range projections and plans. And you sometimes may be reacting. You're reacting impulsively to some of the symptoms that you're seeing and not seeing that there should be an intelligent response based on being able to map out that this is a long range strategy. This is not something that someone just cut, didn't come up and say, MAGA. And you say, oh, the, the whole world's problem is the president we have now. No, he has so he has such little to do with it, you know. Such little to do with it. This is this isn't this stuff isn't new. What you see, just like I explained to you in the 1984 movie, movie, there were concepts being brought about in the 50s. Uh, Conan was written in 1936. You see, ideas of stoicism and, and things like that, and and the, the treacherous nature of quote unquote civilization, the inner city, and what it does to a person. These are not new concepts, you see. But again, that whole idea of unacceptable sexuality where you have there with uh, Darth Vader or James L. Jones, as you know, around that time also did the voice for Darth Vader. Um, but the idea of having to sever his head, you know, so that way now the girls can come out of their, their stupor or come out of their, uh, come from under that spell. You know, um, it's very, it's very, it's very uh, important to understand the identity politics that are being waged there. But again, ultimately, the theme on this one we're talking about is how do you make the perfect soldier? The hate, the venom, the sexual pred predatorialness is how you make these soldiers who go into other lands and, and are willing to kill children, torture people, rape people. Uh, violate people's human rights because they've been violated their entire lives on purpose in order to create these 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 individual war machines. Maybe one day I'll break down the Bourne identity and that whole series, you know, Jason Bourne, which is a whole whole nother <laughs> bag of whatever, whatever, whatever phrase they use. But um, OK. So we're like at an hour and 45 minutes, much longer than I wanted it to be. Um, but again, willfully, you took notes. You, you're understanding what's happening. <laughs> and uh, again, there's a lot of points that are being picked up here. But um, I gave you the important ones based on what we're speaking about in this series and based on what we wanted to address. You know, that idea of stoicism, you know, enduring that pain and, and, and the quietness of it all that men need to learn to develop not just the endurance of pain and quietness, but just the, the um, learning how to cultivate your own struggle 
and cultivate the best from it. And again, that making of the perfect child soldier, which happens again, like with 1984, through the distortion of sexuality. And that fear of the black penis is a real thing. All right. So that has been our segment. This is Chief Yuya signing off. And I want to thank you all for listening and supporting and commenting and all of the the good gravy stuff <laughs> that you've been doing. All right. And uh and and especially for those who are finishing up their their Anu um Life Global their um their cohort for twenty twenty. Like I said, we're doing it once a year. So I know some of you have asked me about it again. You know, um our next cohort that we'll be taking in will be in March of twenty twenty one. All right. Once a year. That's all. You know, it's a process that it has to happen that way because it's a lot of weeding out and a lot of filtering. Many are called, but very few. <laughs> very few are chosen. You remember that the, the numbers that the most honorable Elijah Muhammad gave us, you know, 5% of the poor righteous teachers. 10% are just the Begalas and the tricksters and the 85% of the deaf, dumb, and blind. Those numbers exist everywhere. So if I take in 100 initiates, um, or we get a hundred applications. I usually do end up with around five or six out of the hundred, you know, because I understand the value of those numbers and I understand the reality of what happens in life and, and how some of the intellect and the value and, and the wisdom of people has been crushed. And, um, they're still trying to figure out their own riddles still, and they may never figure it out. They may be cast out of, out of Valhalla. You know, as uh, as uh, Conan has spoken, he's gonna be laughed out. He'll laugh at me and throw me out of our, out of out of the halls. You know, um, because you haven't faced your final confrontation with who you're supposed to. You haven't you haven't subjugated your own demons inside of you, and um, you know you haven't answered those riddles and really freed yourself from you know from from your own obstacles. You know, so in any event, you know, thank you and feel free to um, comment, watch the films, read the books. And on the next one, we're going to be dealing with the never ending story. And that's another important thing. Now, one of the things that you're going to find with all of these works that we're working on, a lot of it is dealing with child psychology. All three of them from 1984. uh, We didn't even get into that as much with Winston. And his experience as a child, but that erasure of um, of history, of his own history. And then when we get into uh, like Conan again, what happened to him as a child and even a childlike state that he kind of was kept in. And then when we get into never ending story, which um, people think it's for children, but it's really not. All right. So thank you all. Everyone be well, be safe. This is Chief Yuya signing out. And, um, you know, I'll see you on the next one. Peace.